statement you reign Lord you reign you remember that he has conquered death hell and the grave and anything you will ever face in your life but the great thing about him reigning is the fact that he said that because of his amazing grace and the work that Jesus has done for you he said that you will reign in this life through Jesus so if he reigns that means that you reign. You reign over every circumstance and every situation that you will ever face. You get to say, I win before the battle's ever been fought. So you reign, oh Lord. And we don't have to be afraid because you are Lord forevermore. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 
you know, I remember one minister saying that if you don't actually get excited about the word, good luck trying to get it to change your situation. Because if you don't get excited about these things, you don't actually understand the implications and the meanings and the applications in your life. Hallelujah. Well, thank you, Toth. And I want to take a moment to say welcome to all those of you who are tuning in from around the world this morning or where, whenever it may be. You know, I was checking out the podcast this week, and I think this last month we've been, had people download us from over 10 countries around the world. You realize there's places that don't have churches, and they're looking to hear the word. And so we just thank you that churches are being birthed in your areas. Yes. Hallelujah. So thanks for joining in and tuning in. We're going to continue on this morning. We're probably going to wrap up this week on our series on Who Are You? And we've been doing a series on our identification with Christ and who we are in Him. Because we have to understand that He has done a work in us through Jesus. And if we don't understand the work that has been done, you will not walk in the work that's been done for you. You'll continue living just the way you've always lived. And so there needs to be a shift in our thinking and in our actions and how we live our lives to align with what he has done in us. And we've been preaching out of Acts chapter 19 where it says that this guy named Sceva had seven sons and he was a Jewish high priest and they had seen Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they got this bright idea, why don't we see if we can do the same thing? And so they found this demon and they said, we command you by the God, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the, the demon's response was great. He said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? You know, if that situation were to happen to you, then you would not get the same response. It would be, yes, right now, I will obey. I will do exactly what you said because they know who you are. Just as they knew who Jesus was, he was the one that defeated them. He was the one that led captivity before um, all, all, all of history, basically. You know, I think we may get to see that play out when we get to heaven. We get to see the work of him putting them on display. And it says that he triumphed over them. You know, when we think about the word triumph, we think about, oh, he won. They won the game. Woohoo! But in terms of, if you go back in the context of the word that's used and the setting in which it's written, a triumph was actually a Roman thing that would be done. They would go through and they would win, they'd conquer over a nation, and then they would take the, re the, the people who used to reign in that nation, they would put them in chains, they would build a massive arch usually in the center of the city, in a place where everyone is going to have to walk through it, and then they would take all of the people that they've just defeated and that they've just become now their slaves, and they would walk them through the arch as a symbol of, guess what? You are now under our authority. You do what we say or else. You can, you can fill in the or else there of what they would do to them. And so when Paul borrows this word, the setting that he was writing to and the, 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 the people at Coloss in Colossae, because he was writing to the Colossian church, they knew what he said 
when God has triumphed over principality and powers and that he's made a show of them openly, he, they basically said God had a parade with all the powers of hell and darkness and told everyone they're defeated. And so when it comes to you in this situation, Jesus I know, Paul I know, and I definitely know your name because you're one of those in Christ people. You know, we're going to skip that part. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You were taken and you were placed in Christ. You became a new creation, something that you were before ceased to exist, and something new began when you stepped into Jesus. You know, I really like this verse that Peter has. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. What does it mean to be a partaker? Let's say we had a big table here, and we had an awesome spread of all the best foods, the things that you would like, and I sat down and said, you know what, guys? Why don't you come and sit at the table and eat this with me? means that you can get up, you can come and sit at my table, and you can eat the food on that table. So when Peter tells them that you have become a partaker of the divine nature, he's saying you've been given access to use the same nature that Jesus himself used. Oh, come on. You do not have the nature of a human being anymore. That person ceased to exist when you stepped into Jesus. You may act the same because you've never learned better, but that person ceased to exist and a new nature took over. And you want to know the truth about something? God can't tell the difference between you and Jesus. In theology, we call it the rose-colored stained glass glass. God put on glasses and all he sees is the blood of Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees what Jesus did. When you speak, he hears Jesus' words. Because he has taken you and placed Christ Jesus. So two weeks ago, we preached a message to you called A Tale of Two Men. And we talked about how it was necessary for us to become born again. And we talked about Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And this made Nicodemus' head just go tilt. He didn't, it was like, he's like, what? You want me to get, this is what he said to Jesus, you want me to get back in my mother's stomach and be born again? He had no idea of the concept that Jesus was trying to say to him. But Jesus explained it a little bit better. In verse 5, he said, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he told Nicodemus, there's two births that everyone goes through. The first one identifies you with your natural lineage, which is who your parents are, who your grandparents were, and your, your ancestry all the way back to the very first one, which was Adam. And so that was the first birth. It associated you with Adam. And then there was the birth of the Spirit that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, which he was saying, you need to get rid of that old lineage 
and take on the new one. And so he says everyone must go through two births. There's your natural birth, and the second one is your birth in the Spirit. And the reason why that was is because if we go all the way back to the beginning, Adam screwed it up for everyone. And Romans 5.12 said when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. And so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. And it says that it's not that they sinned in the same likeness as Adam. They sinned because of the nature that was given to them and passed down to Adam. And so it says Adam screwed it up for everyone. And so your first birth associates you with the screw up that was Adam. And Adam went in that moment of when, he, when he partook of the, of the fruit that God asked them not to eat. Adam went for, from reigning over creation to being ruled over by creation. The whole thing was flipped upside down. But that's not where the story ended. In verse 15 it said... But there was a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. So he's saying there's something different about the second work that was better than the first. It says, for the sin that this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 it says, for if by one man's offense death reigned, through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Through the one, Jesus Christ. And so I gave you this verse out of the Message Bible because I think it sums up it very well. Verse 18. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all into this trouble with sin and death, Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of the trouble, he got us into life. When Jesus did the second work, he fixed it so that it could never be broken again. And that's why we must be associated with Jesus' work and let go of our association with Adam. Because Adam's is an infallible work. It screwed things up. Jesus, his work can't be changed. And last week we preached a message to you called Two Sons. And we talked about the prodigal son. Which really, in terms of the story, the prodigal son, yes, he, it says that he had, did prodigal loving, but, lo, living, but the word prodigal actually means lavish or outlandish lifestyle and i think the person in the story that more identifies that is the father the father was lavish in his love and it's an ability inability to be changed and so he had two sons and the youngest son came to him and said you know what dad i wish you were dead give me your inheritance now and so the father surprisingly because if it was me i'd be like no harrison no, Bennett, whichever one it was, you wait. <laughs> but in this father, he divided up his kingdom. And so the oldest son would have got a double portion, and then the youngest son would have got what's left. And the youngest son took his money, and he left, and he went off, off to the land. He spent all his money, and he found himself in the place of being a servant. But what we told you was, is that a man had two sons. And so just because you found yourself in a bad place doesn't make you a slave. 
it has never changed God's perspective of you. And so the son came up with this plan. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, Oh, father, I have sinned against you, and I'm unworthy. And so he thought that sounded like a good, good plan. So he went back to his father. And as he was coming up the laneway a long way off, it says that the father saw him. And the father ran to him. And the father hugged him. And the father kissed him. And then the sons went into his speech. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. And the father didn't even bother listening. He said, quick, bring me a robe. Put a good, the best robe on him. Quick, bring me some sandals for his feet. Quick, go kill the best calf we have. My son was dead and he has returned. No matter how unworthy you will ever feel, it never changes God's feeling about you. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when he said, I love my kids, it changes mine. When he said, I'm going to do the best that I can for them, he never changed his mind. When he said, I will go to the ends of the earth to restore them, and so Romans 8.15 told us that we have not received the spirit that makes us fearful slaves. Instead, we've received God's spirit when he adopted us as his own children. And now our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. You know, there was a second son in that story, though. And he came, and he heard the party going on. And so he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? He said, we're having a party because your brother is come home. And we've killed the fatted calf. And the, the second son got upset about this. And he, his father came out to talk to him. He said, come on, your brother's home. Come in and have a party with us. We need to celebrate this. And he said, you know, that son of yours, no longer his brother, he's disassociating himself with it, he went off and he spent all your money on prostitutes and drinking and everything and all the things that he lists. And then he says, and here I have been serving you all this time and you've never given me anything. And this goes back to the start of the story. It said a man had two sons. And we have two sons in this story that decided they were going to act like servants. But it never changed God. And so the father came out to the second son and said, Look, dear son, he reminded him, it wasn't good slave. He said, Dear son, you have stayed by me always, and everything I have is yours. So as our nature, we are sons and daughters of Almighty God. But... We don't always act like it. In this story, we had one son. He messed up, spent everything, started working as a servant. We had another one who lived in the house of the father with the mentality of a servant. Both of the sons had the wrong picture of the father. And both of the sons walked out an existence that they were not supposed to live. They were the masters of the house and the father said, everything I have is yours. Now, why is this story in Luke 15 important? Because it's a parable. Jesus was telling this story for a reason. What is a parable? A parable has a hidden meaning behind it that has application 
into your life, and in particular, the parables that Jesus was sharing in Luke 15 were parables of how the kingdom works. And so he was trying to give his disciples and the other people that were listening a picture in how God's heart works. Everything I have is yours. One son walked away, the other son tried to earn it. But everything is already yours. So we ended with this verse. We said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by what? Changing the way you think. Because then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So he's saying when we allow God to transform the way we think, we begin to understand the true heart of the Father. We begin to see how good it is and how the things that he has for us are pleasing and how his perfect love will never change. And so this morning I want to take up in Ephesians chapter 4 because it says this in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their, everybody say it with me, mind. The word he uses for walk is the Greek word for lifestyle. It's how you act, it's how you talk, it's how you live. And so he's saying you don't need to walk and live and talk and think like the Gentiles used to. And the word he used here for futility is the word in the Greek for frail. Now what is frail? You say someone's been sick, maybe they've been, had cancer for a long time. What begins to happen is they get weak, they get skinny, they get gaunt, and they just can't really do much because they're so weak. And so the picture that, Jesus, or that Paul was trying to paint in the, in the Ephesians' mind was that the way you used to think is weak and emaciated. Sometimes we think that we're pretty good at how we do things. But you know, God's thoughts are always higher than ours. Yeah. And so he says, so I say to you, I don't want you to think and act and talk and live like the Gentiles used to walk in the weakness of their mind. And it says, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And so it says their understanding had alienated them from the life of God. Now, I had quite a shock when I was studying this week, and I decided, I'm going to take a minute, I'm going to look up that word alienated. And it comes from two different words. The first word means to separate, and the second word, get ready for it, it means to hang out with a family you don't belong to. So when he's talking about the lifestyle of the Gentiles and saying, don't live and walk and talk and act like they, because by doing that, you separate yourself and hang out with a family with which you don't belong, and it blocks you from the life of God. That just shook me when I thought about that. That our, the way we think and the way we view our situations can disassociate us from Jesus and associate us with things we don't want to be with and thus block God's blessings. You know, I've met a lot of Christians who are like, God, please bless me. You know, increase me. But yet, 
They're cutting themselves off with the way they think and the way they act and the way they live. It's not that God is cutting them off. It says that their thinking separated them and associated them. God's minds for you never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says in James that he has no shadow of turning, meaning God always stays in the exact same position on every topic. And it says, so that therefore, you're not consumed. Meaning you don't have to think about how does God feel today? He always feels the same way. And so our thinking can move us away from God's blessings that he's wanting to pour into our lives. You know, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. God's whole purpose for you and Jesus' plan coming to die for you was to, that life can be funneled into your life. I love the Amplified in this translation. It says, I came that they may have and enjoy life. God wants you not only to have life, he wants you to enjoy it. It's basically the biblical equivalent of you can have your cake and eat it too. He wants you to have life and he wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to have good things and enjoy it. He wants you to be healthy and enjoy your health. He has so much life that he has purchased for you by the work of Jesus that is intended for you that we have the ability to turn the tap off. I think it's interesting that he didn't put that ability in his hands. He put it in your hands. And so I see a lot of people blame God. Well, God, why did this happen? And why not this instead? And God is really saying, turn the tap back on and let life flow to you. So he's came that you might have life and that you may enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. So God can often get this picture of he wants you to have, you know, he'll, he'll give you what you need. That would be the equivalent of putting what you need in the cup. And what did he say about the cup of your life? Till it overflows. Abundant. More than enough. Now, why does that have to be? Because it goes back to his very nature that doesn't change. He called himself, one of his own names was El Shaddai. And that name means the God who's more than enough. And so we need to expand our thinking. Well, it's, my life's pretty good right now. You know, I've got enough. You've already, in that thought process, shut off the tap. Because God wasn't interested in just enough. He's the God that overflows. But you notice, we're the ones that begin to settle. Oh, life's pretty good. I've helped enough people this week. I've done enough things. I've had enough food. My car's been nice enough. Now, I'm not talking about getting into a materialistic mindset in it, but we often limit God in our own thinking that he's expanded me enough. Well, when you think you've been expanded enough, go ahead and say, God, expand my territory again. Send the tent poles out the left. Send the tent poles out the right and make this tent bigger. And then, when you expand to, expand to that level, go ahead and expand again. Because God's an ever-increasing mindset. 
Because by blessing you, he reaches to others. But Proverbs 23.7 tells us something. It's a very important verse in the Bible. You've probably heard it before, but do you understand the implications of it? Proverbs 23.7, it says, For as a man thinks in his heart, or which is the word for mind, so he is. It didn't say, as God thinks about you, so you are. He says, as you think about yourself, so you are. What is your view of yourself? You know, I have to say that I've gone through times where I've, I've viewed myself very insignificantly. And that's almost a sin in itself because it causes you to think small about the things God's wanting to launch you into. You need to think big about yourself because that's how God views you. How you view yourself and the situations you go through can block you from the full life God has desired for you. But, Ephesians chapter 4, we were were reading out of it. That's not where the story ends. It says, but you have not so learned Christ that way. That's not what you've learned about Christ. So the Gentiles may alienate themselves from, from the life of God, but Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians, that's not what you learned. And I thank God that in this church, that's not what you've learned either. We don't learn to think small. We don't think to learn just and live with just enough. We think in terms of blessing, overflow, increase. God wants to launch you out into new areas far beyond what you could think or ask or imagine. God goes above and beyond. So you have not so learned Christ in that fashion. And we're going to continue to not learn Christ in that fashion. We're going to continue to preach a more than enough God. We're going to continue to preach Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to go ahead and continue to preach that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That the old things have passed away, that all things have become new. Because if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says, put off concerning the former conduct. I have to ask this question. What was the conduct he was talking about? Their thinking. He wasn't talking about the actions. Oh, you drank too much this week. Oh, you just weren't a nice enough person. He wasn't talking about that type of conduct. The conduct he talked about in the verses preceding was the way they thought. And so he says, put off your old way of thinking. The old man that grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. There's certain mindsets that you can dwell on and think on that will deceive you into thinking you're something that you're not. You need to think as God says you are. And it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and true holiness. So he's telling you, every day, put on. What does it mean to put on? I'm going to go ahead and tell you that it's no different than you getting dressed in the morning. He's telling you, put on that new man that you've been created every morning. Now, let's think about this for a second. What would happen if you didn't change your clothes for 30 days? You've worn the old, same old stinky garments for 30 days. People are going to start keeping their distance from you. 
They're going to be like, man, that person needs some new clothes on. What happens if you don't shower for 30 days? It gets even worse. It starts to stink. And you know what? The same thing becomes of your life when you don't intentionally put on the new man every morning. You don't set your thoughts in the direction they're intended to go. If you don't conform your thoughts to the way God thinks about you, your life begins to stink and people like to keep their distance. But what happens when each day you intentionally put on the new man? Life begins to change and the life of God begins to flow to you. So how do we put on the new man? We do it with our lifestyle and our language, which is a byproduct of our thoughts. Romans 6.4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now, I highlighted should there for a reason. Should is not a definite article. It's an opportunity. He says, because you've died with Christ and you've been raised with him by the glory of the Father, you should walk in newness of life. Not meaning you will. It's a choice that is up to you. God is not going to make you think the way he thinks, but he's given you the opportunity to. God is not going to force you to live the life he planned out for you, but he's got an opportunity for you to. And so it says, because we've died with him and we've been raised with him, we should also walk with him. Meaning, think like him, talk like him, live our lives just like he did. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But I gave you this alternate translation from the distilled Bible, said this, I consider myself having died and now enjoying my second existence, which is simply Jesus using my body. So when you get up in the morning, you say, Jesus, I thank you, you have opportunities for me. Jesus, I thank you that I can walk it just like you walked it. Jesus, I thank you that I can think the way you think. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that you will guide my steps each way, each step of this day. Romans 6.11 goes on to say this. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, reckon is not really a word we use very much in English. You can think back to... When the, the, in the Old West time, I can just picture John Wayne saying this, well, I reckon we better get along, get up on our horses there, partner, we got to get going down the road. That's where my context for reckon goes. But reckon is where we get our word for reconcile, which is an accounting term. And the word reckon in the Greek is the word logozomai, which means to calculate or take into account. So back to the verse, it says... Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead or take into account and add up that you're dead and you're now alive. So basically what he's telling you, and this is going to be a not very happy word for some of you, he's telling you, do the math. 
You know, maybe you weren't very good in math. I was good in math. English was another thing I'm still having to work on, as you can tell by some of the ways I talk sometimes. <laughs> but he's saying, do the math. He's saying, there's some things you need to add up. There's some things you need to subtract out of your life. You need to reconcile things and get down to the bottom line and realize what you are and then live from that place. So let's do some math this morning. We have Christ died, plus you died with him. Plus Christ was raised to new life, plus you were raised with him. Plus death no longer has dominion over him equals same as Jesus for you. If death has no dominion over him and you've been raised up and made to sit together with him, guess what? Death has no hold and no reign over you. You reign. So, I begin to change my language and my lifestyle, lifestyle to conform to God's view of me. That might mean you have to let go of some views that you had of you. You know, last night, I was in a bit of a mood, and I was kind of having a bit of a pity party, and Robin was like, you know what? Why don't you just go turn on some worship music and remember who you are? And I'm like, mm, you should stop listening to my messages. <laughs> but there's some ways you have to stop living because of who you are. You don't need to have a pity party. You reign. That's basically the equivalent of saying, you're going to win this situation. So, if we're going to change our language and we're going to change our lifestyle, we need to conform it to something, and that is God's view of us. So let's look at some views that God has of us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So everything negative was put on Jesus. He became it all for you. You have been redeemed. There's nothing that you can do to better the situation that Jesus has put you in. And he said that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Okay, that means because you've been redeemed, there's now a new flow that is intended to come right into your life. And what was that flow? The blessings of Abraham. You know, some people are spending a little bit too much time trying to be blessed instead of just realizing they are blessed. If the curse has been removed, the blessing has been applied. There's nothing more for you to do except live in it. So next time you feel like you have a need and there's something that you need done, just remember the blessing already exists in your life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Which means that when I start to think back to the old way of existing, I just have to remind myself, I'm not that person anymore. You know, some people associate themselves and identify themselves with things that they have no business being in. Typically, when I used to work with um, the Prayer and Healing Center in Oklahoma, we would find a lot of people who would come in and identify as their sickness. Well, my cancer. It's your cancer? You took hold of it. It's become your identity. It's who you are. How about my healer who has flooded my body? Jesus, who is the one that is living out this second existence. And the ones that we could get to let go of letting it be their identity and identify with Jesus 
they got healed so easy. But when, just because you were sick doesn't mean that's your identity any longer. So stop identifying with your sickness and identify with the healer. The old man's dead. He's dead. Old things have become new. I love Romans 5.17 says, Those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. So we get up with the mentality in the morning, I am going to dominate this day. I am going to reign over it. I am going to win. Now some of you are going to have to say these things after you've had your coffee and pepped yourself up a little. Because I know how I am in the morning sometimes. But I'm getting better. I'm getting more and more of a morning person. But I think of people like Smith Wigglesworth. They asked him how he starts his day. He says when the alarm goes off, he hits the floor dancing. And he'll dance for 10 or 15 minutes. And then when he's confident that he's excited to win this day, then he faces it. So like I said, some of you are going to need to get some coffee into you first. But it's good to have these type of conversations with yourself. And remind yourself how the day is going to do go rather than letting the day dictate to you how it will go. Romans 8.37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So today, I plan on being the one who wins. Because in everything I do, I am the conqueror. I am more than a conqueror because Jesus has done the work for me. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph. And so because he always leads me into triumph, I plan on following him into it today. Yes. Not next week, not maybe next year, today I'm following him into triumph. He who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. And if I were healed, that means that's what I am now, not what I'm going to be tomorrow, not when the doctor says it's left my body. I am now because that's what God has said I am. We put it in the tense that he put it in. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever I've come against today, I can defeat it because I got Christ's strength flowing through me. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If there's a need, he shall supply it. Today, my God is supplying. These are the thoughts of the righteous, the redeemed, the restored, the remade children of God. The great thing about these, you know, I have to live my life in front of you guys to be an example. You don't have to do all this talking in front of people. You can do it in your mirror to yourself. But learn, talk, and live, and think in terms of how God you want to see a shift in your life? Stop checking the pain and start checking the healer. Start checking the bank account and start checking the supplier. Man, think in terms of God. And that's how you transform your life. So Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you've gone all the way with the work. That there's nothing more that we have to do other than believe 
and align with you in it. So we thank you that this week, Lord, we know we're going to have opportunities to think contrary. Holy Spirit, remind us of how you view us. Remind us of your goodness and of your grace and your unending supply. Remind us of all those things that you think about us. That when we want to fear, we remind, you remind us that we, you have given us the spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. When we feel like we're not going to be able to go over, we thank you that you remind us that we are more than conquerors. Whatever the situation would be, we thank you that you remind us of who we are because of who you are. And we thank you, Father, for it. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. You reign. Over it all, over it all. 